You're listening to Threads Radio. My name's Luke Fraser, and this is The Tonic.
Well, I don't always go in for concertos, but that's just great in my opinion. Two movements there from Anna Klein's 2019 cello concerto in all but name. It's actually called Dance and the movements, the first one, When You're Broken Open and the fourth, In Your Blood. She's a London-born and Grammy-nominated composer, now resident in the US, who works in both instrumental and electroacoustic music. And Dance, in capital letters, is titled after the poem by the 13th century Persian writer and mystic Rumi, with each of the five lines of that short poem forming the name of one of the movements. So we get Dance when you're broken open, Dance if you've torn the bandage off, Dance in the middle of the fighting, Dance in your blood, and Dance when you're perfectly free. To me, it's just a beautifully crafted, unpretentious and emotionally direct piece without ever being manipulative. And bearing in mind the use of the cello throughout and its strong tonal, wide-angled and almost filmic nature, it never becomes too gushing or maudlin. It's also very seamless in how it integrates its stylistic sources. Filmmakers mentioned, but also often folk-like, though I don't know the actual sources if there are particular ones and with Baroque echoes in that fourth as well. And it's probably just me, but I can't help hearing in the brass and strings riff in the middle of that fourth movement, an echo of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, of all things. It's performed with a real sense of poise there by both Inbal Segeth on cello and the London Philharmonic Orchestra under the baton of Marin Allsop. And it's taken from the album Anna Klein Dances, Edward Elgar Cello Concerto, and was released on Avi earlier this year. Hey, 
tjänst. Nej, nej, nej.
yet another incredible testament to the seemingly infinite expressiveness of the human voice. That's Karen Renkvist's breakthrough work, David's Nim, written in 1984. We've all become accustomed to brilliantly inventive uses of the voice, hailing from all corners of the world, whether that be alpine yodeling, Inuit throat singing, conical or the scat singing of Indian classical music, and so on and so forth. But I at least had never heard sounds quite like those at the start of that piece. They're derived from kulning, traditional Nordic herding calls dating back to at least medieval times, and which are used to coax livestock down from high mountain pastures. As you can guess, the sound needs to travel long distances, and there's also speculation that they may also be used to ward off predators such as wolves and bears. And what is fascinating for me is the duality of its utilitarian function on the one hand, with its unmistakable aesthetic qualities on the other, suggesting, well, loneliness, sadness, mourning even, but also harshness, rawness, something almost primeval and brutal. And as we listen to that piece, we're immediately cast into a strange and primal landscape. And whilst there is a certain reassurance of familiarity that starts to accrue in the first few minutes, I love the way the piece then moves towards a climax shortly before the end that is just incredibly disconcerting and strange. And I found myself doing a double take, because whilst on the one hand, the musical elements have not really changed since the start, it's as though those elements have been picked up, thrown headlong, and dashed against some ancient, desolate rock far below. And Karen Rehnquist is known as a composer who specialises in vocal and choral music. She said that singing is where I belong, and my voice is my instrument. And she works in that, for me, fascinating hinterland between so-called folk music and so-called art music. And it's that creation of these new hybrids that seem like worlds unto themselves that is surely one of the great achievements that any artist can make. That piece, as mentioned, went a fair way towards establishing her name and was written specifically with the vocalists Lena Vilmark, Suzanne Rosenberg and Agnetha Christensen in mind. It's taken from the album of the same name, David's Nim, and that was released on Phonoswekia in 1996.
loving that. Such a subtle and elegant combination of Persian and European elements. That's two of the Persian folk songs by Reza Valley, an Iranian composer born in Gazvin and now living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I believe. The first one was Longing and the second In Memory of a Lost Beloved. The Persian folk songs are an ongoing cycle that he's been adding to since 1978, with some based on folk melodies and some composed in the style of them. They were written for Iranian cellist Kian Sultani, who performs them there along with a pianist Aaron Pilson. And Sultani refers to Reza Valley as the Bartok of Iran, and I definitely also get something there of the romanticism of Schubert and Schumann blended seamlessly with the scales and melodic inflections of Persian music. And with respect to the performance, I guess I often foreground the piece itself when talking about the stuff I play on this show. It's the piece, it's the composer, and then the performers. But so often it's the particular performance that enhances or even makes the music. And in my defense, I do spend a fair percentage of the research time behind each show in comparing performances and crucially also their recordings in order to pick out the one that I feel best represents the music. In this case, it's just a brilliantly nuanced performance by both players, and one which I think really elevates the material. It's taken from Sultani and Pilsen's album called Home, and that was released on Deutsch Grammophone in 2018. Next, it's back to the height of the Tudor period, the 1920s, of course.
Henry VIII for the Jazz Age. That's six of the 12 pieces from Lambert's Clavichord by Herbert Howells, written in 1927. All through my life, Howells said, I've had this strange feeling that I belonged somehow to the Tudor period, not only musically, but in every way. And apparently Ralph Vaughan Williams had a theory that he was the reincarnation of one or other of the minor Tudor luminaries. In any case, Howells had certainly had a moment of revelation upon hearing the first performance of Vaughan Williams's Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis in 1910 at the Three Choirs meeting in Gloucester. It was after then that I felt I really knew myself, both as a man and an artist, he said. It all seemed so incredibly new at the time, but I soon came to realise how very, very old it actually was, how I'd been living that music since long before I could even begin to remember. And the brilliantly idiosyncratic Lambert's clavichord was in effect Howe's riff on Tudor dance pieces via the Fitzwilliam Virginal book, a seminal collection of Elizabethan and early Jacobean keyboard pieces taking its name from the Viscount who bequeathed the manuscript to Cambridge University in the mid-19th century. And there's always something interesting to me in these supposedly minor or more personal pieces by composers predominantly remembered for other pieces. There's an element of light-hearted experimentalism and often personal creative exuberance that can sometimes be missing from large-scale commissions and public-facing works with all their pomp and circumstance. I find the harmonic writing in particular fascinating, both graceful and ingenious. It's partly the pre-functional nature of the source material, so before tonal harmony had become to be codified in the way it was from the time of the late Baroque through to the classical period, blah blah. But then there's the double twist of that in turn being refracted through a neoclassical 20th century sensibility. So there's these intermittently modernist skews on a language that is already mysterious through its historical and circumstantial distance from us. And not to gaslight you too much, but there is no clavichord. That is to say, you are actually listening there to a Lauten work, sometimes called a lute harpsichord. It's a European keyboard instrument of the Baroque period, a little like a harpsichord, but with gut rather than metal strings, and producing a mostly mellow tone. That was performed by John Paul on the Lautenwerk, and taken from the album Howl's Works for Clavichord on the label Centaur in 2002.
that was Heartbeat, written in 2017 by Nilifal Norbakesh. She's an NYC-based composer and pianist who grew up in Iran, studying at Tehran University before leaving in 2009 during a turbulent political period for that country and going via Oxford to the States. And there, whilst continuing to write, she's co-founded the Iranian Female Composers Association in 2018, along with Anahita Abazi and Aida Shirazi. And their membership spans North America, Europe and Asia, and includes composers who write for both Western and traditional Persian instruments. And the mission, of course, is to support female composers, especially young women from Iran, through programming, commissioning and mentorship. As you can guess, the situation within Iran for female composers and performers is at best highly uncertain and in practice seemingly all but verboten. Even male composers, such as Mehdi Rajabian, have faced lengthy jail sentences for working alongside female musicians. And Nilifar Nurbakash has described her own experience growing up learning music in Iran as having had a lot of teachers and musicians telling her she shouldn't compose, generally discouraging her and leading her to stop writing altogether at one point. So she said of the reasons for her setting up the association, there could be someone in Iran right now who might need this, and we should be there for them. And also I found a lot of female composers around the world who are doing amazing work and are active writing music, and I just felt that, why are we all so disconnected? That was performed by Nilifar Nurbakash on piano with electronics, and that was released on her YouTube channel in 2017.
Some really zippy string writing there. That's the final movement of Ahmad Pejman's Divertimento. He's from La Iran, having grown up studying violin and playing in the Tehran Symphony Orchestra from where he was awarded a scholarship to study composition in Vienna before moving permanently to the US in 1976 prior to the revolution. He's written very widely, both as a classical composer and more commercially with symphonic works alongside operas, ballets, and also a lot of scores for film and TV under his belt. And there's definitely a bit of a mix of genres going on in that piece. It's got a sprightly directness to it that I really like, and it's played brilliantly, though I know not, I'm afraid, by whom. I can tell you that it was released on the album of the same name though, that's Divertimento, and that the label is Kerad Art House, and the year of release, 2017.
more minimalism from Sweden this month then, though not for once for the organ. That's actually the A-side to this record, if you must ask. You heard there Ellen Arkbro's Chords for Guitar, written last year. She's a young composer, organist and coder who studied at the electronic music studio EMS in Stockholm that I was talking a little bit about in the last show, and also the Royal College of Music. And she's also a student of Lamont Young and Mark Sabat, with whom I believe she studied alternative tuning systems, such as mean tone temperament. Now, if you're familiar with tuning systems, then you'll already know all about that. If not, well, then basically everything you've been listening to your whole life is based on a lie, or so some would have it. In a nutshell, the dominant system of tuning, known as equal temperament, established in Europe through the 17th and 18th centuries, offers the convenience of workable harmonic modulation to other key centers, but at the cost of compromising certain intervals as compared to their natural Pythagorean ratios. The result, aside from the utility of equal temperament, is not only a different sense of tuning, but one that compromises harmonic or tonal richness via misaligning with the natural overtones or partials of particular intervals. Major thirds are notoriously bad in ET, and that's one of the things that mean tone temperament aims to address. Anyhow, as far as I know, that piece is tuned in mean tone temperament. Please someone correct me if I'm wrong. And certainly the focus of the piece would seem to be based almost entirely on the resonance of the subtle differences in the decay of each chord and the way that we can focus on the rich overtones within them. And I'd love to know exactly how this piece was recorded. In what sense exactly are we listening to a guitar? If it is a conventional guitar, it sounds like it must surely have been mechanically played. It just seems too perfect. Or is it all actually synthesis? The album received some interesting reviews when it came out last year, and this piece in particular seems to divide the crowd a bit. On the one hand, it has a definite procedural severity. None of the developmental niceties we may usually seek are to be found. None of the comforts of melody, rhythm, and so on. But to me at least there is an ambience and an emotional heft to what we have, sitting as it does somewhere between the academic, the industrial, and even the ritualistic or sacred. And Ellen Arkbro has herself drawn connections to sacred music through a method of reduction, stripping away elements in a process she likens to a sculptor chipping away at stone. As she has mysteriously described it, what you pay attention to will change what you hear. As mentioned, the album is Chords, and that was released on the label Subtext last year. Now, if you are hankering for the sunlit uplands of a bit of melody to go along with your chords, well, then how about this? Thank you. 
well, it just doesn't get much lovelier than that. You can just see the bucolic rolling hills and the sheep gambling in the pastures of England's green and pleasant land as you listen. And yet, thankfully, it's rather too subtle to feature in your last nights of the proms and so on. That's Eclog, written in 1928 by Gerald Finzi. And he's probably best known as a choral composer. He's also written a few fairly well-known pieces for other settings. And despite the effortless serenity of this piece, it's got a bit of a tangled history. He started writing it in the late 1920s. I think the original idea was to write a large-scale piano concerto, of which I presume this was to be the middle movement, and to represent through the music a conversation between shepherds. But in any case, he never got around to finishing it. And in fact, the piece as it is didn't even see the light of day until after he was dead and buried. Anyhow, that conversational aspect can be heard in the call and response of the main melody between the piano with its neo-Barkian stylings and the orchestra. And following the master, there is just a great interplay throughout between the harmony and melody, or melodic counterpoint. But in the interest of journalistic balance, I'll slightly trample on this bucolic scene by saying that I do have some slight okay, very minor quibbles with some of the orchestration. In contrast to that beautifully sparse piano opening, it can be a bit blocky and overly doubled at times, including the piano doubling the strings. That always sounds a little schmaltzy to me, but I have to say the performance does the best job I've heard. But I have to say this performance does the best job I've heard of understating all of that and playing to the strengths of the writing. It was performed by Tom Poster, on piano alongside the Aurora Orchestra, conducted by Nicholas Collin, and taken from the album Introit, the music of Gerald Finzi, released on Decca in 2016. So, two fantastic electronic pieces to play out this show, of which now, the first.
a truly unique mix of electronic sci-fi weirdness with something really rather wistful. That's Tyria, Lovebirds Drowned in Sorrow, written by Atta Ebtekar, also known as Sote. He's someone who has made the inverse journey, in a sense, to the other Iranian composers featured so far in this show. Born in Hamburg, he now lives and works in Tehran. He's probably Iran's best-known electronic music artist, with records put out by the likes of Warp, Sub Rosa, Morphine, Repitch, Opal Tapes and Diagonal, under both his own name and that of Sote, and Sote means sound in Farsi. That journey, both physically and professionally, is I think partly down to his role as a figurehead and champion of electronic music in Iran, and also down to the ever-shifting political landscape there with regard to culture in general. Certainly until fairly recently, electronic music had been suppressed by the government, but increasingly Iran is now becoming recognized as a hub for some of the world's most vibrant and interesting experimental music. And no doubt some of that change is as a result of Ebtekar's own advocacy. He co-founded the SET festival in 2015 after lengthy negotiations with the authorities, giving Iranians the chance to watch audiovisual performances and dance to contemporary electronic music. Since then, it's sold out every year. And he also established the label Zabta Sote as a platform to present Iran's emergent avant-garde to the world. In terms of his music, well, broadly speaking, it fuses elements of Iranian classical and vernacular music into a highly sophisticated and rather idiosyncratic electronic music technique. There's really no one else that sounds quite like him. The result is these fantastical, almost physically embodied, yet virtual electronic music instruments that crop up with each piece. As he said, there will be moments where the listener will be challenged to distinguish whether a certain element is a real acoustic instrument or physical modeling synthesis. As an overall aesthetic, it's an acquired taste that I'm not sure I've yet fully acquired, but hey, that's just me. And in any case, this piece definitely grabbed me. And the album from which it's taken, Persian Electronic Music Yesterday and Today, is a fascinating document and summary of two generations of electronic music composers, the older being represented by a disc's worth of music by Ali Reza Mir Sheikhi, and the younger by the music of Ebtekar. It was released on Sub Rosa in 2007. So if that was peering open-eyed through a window into a sci-fi music universe beyond, this last one is well and truly out there. This is Akos Rosman.
12 Stationer 6 by Akos Rosman. Now, I usually try to avoid excerpting things on this show. Just play the thing in its entirety or choose something shorter. But in the case of Akos Rosman, that's not always going to be possible. His pieces are usually very long. The mass he wrote runs continually over five days, for example. So at least the 12 Stationer is a sprint by comparison at a mere six hours. Rosman now seems to me to occupy an almost semi-mythic place in electronic music. Born in Hungary at the start of the Second World War, he attended the Franz Liszt Academy of Music in Budapest, studying composition and organ, before moving to Stockholm for postgrad in the early 70s. And there, after a stint at the Royal College of Music, he took up a position as the organist at the Stockholm Catholic Cathedral, where he was to remain for the next 20 years. And yet alongside, he was discovering electronic music and starting to work at the electronic music studio EMS. There it is again. And also from the early 80s onwards, he started to build a private electroacoustic studio in the basement of the cathedral. After working in the main cathedral space by day, he would set to work in the studio in the basement below through the night. By all accounts, he was the archetypal modernist recluse, eschewing the normal events of official musical life and often failing to attend even his own premieres. He seemed motivated neither by professional critics nor his audience, but rather to be wholly preoccupied with the perfect articulation of his musical vision. And dramatically, the conflict between good and evil seems to form the basic theme in his works. And the 12 stations, composed between 1978 and 2001, entirely at Ems, I believe, is no exception. It's a musical interpretation of the Tibetan Wheel of Life, 
and shows how Buddhism was gradually beginning to blend with his previously Catholic worldview. And it's really just a brilliantly disorientating mix of choral elements and fully hands-on cut-and-paste tape manipulation with an eeriness and a sense of epic scope that just hits you right from the first note. The album 12 Station of Six was released on the label Ideologic Organ in 2012. But if that's barely enough for you, then I should point out that Editions Mago released a seven CD box set of the entire series of the stations back in 2014. Right, that's it for another one. Thank you to Rosie and everyone at Threads. The Tonic will be back on the 25th of November, I believe, at 10am GMT. My name's Luke Fraser. Thanks for listening.